Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 133 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. I've been visiting the virtual National Honey Show this week, watching a few presentations and was then inspired to have a bash at making some beeswax wraps. Beekeeping Short and Sweet a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. I'm grateful to Honeypore Hives for sponsoring in part our podcast for this season. Honeypore Hives, as I'm sure you're aware, are Polly Langstroth Hives, and we're setting up an apiary full of their hives this season, courtesy of Honeypore. Check out their range of hives and other equipment on their website, and I'll leave links to all of the websites in the show notes as usual. Honeypore Hives, designed by beekeepers for beekeepers. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been another very autumnal week, certainly as far as the weather has been concerned. We've had high winds and rain yet again. I know you wait with bated breath for my weather updates. Well, this week has been typically wet and windy again. I have noticed quite a lot of fairly large trees that have been blown over in the fields and down some of the country lanes that I've been driving around. Just a couple of days ago, I was driving around in search of more oilseed rape sites and saw a couple of separate farms where the tractors and chainsaws were out, so it must have been fairly bad. Some fairly large old oak trees look to have been blown over. This week I've put together a few different topics to discuss and update you on. Nothing major really, some fairly exciting plans and some long overdue. Firstly, my virtual visit to the National Honey Show. It was quite interesting. There were not as many speakers as I had expected, to be honest, so the choice was fairly limited. At least, that's what I found. Maybe four virtual events each day and some topics that I wasn't really interested in. That said, it appears the organisers made good use of the technology and the talks and demonstrations I did see went without major incident, apart from the point that my phone froze and the speaker on the TV did exactly the same thing. I was using my mobile phone to watch the videos by casting it to my TV to get a nice large image, and for the most part it worked really well. The opening speaker was Mike Palmer from America, who I guess a lot of you will know through his previous talks and also on YouTube, and he talked us through his beekeeping year. I've watched Mike's presentations previously, and if you're not familiar with his operation, it's really worth seeking out his presentations from previous years. I really enjoyed the skep-making demonstration by a gent called Chris Park. I'm not familiar with Chris, but it was set outside in his garden, obviously pre-recorded, and he gave a demonstration of how he makes skeps and talked about the practical ways you can make a skep yourself. There was just enough information to get you excited about making a skep, but not quite enough to prevent you from needing to book a course with him, I suspect. It was excellent, and if I had the time, I'd love to sit quietly at the unit making a few skeps to try out next season. The biggest issue, as I saw it, is we're losing the skills to be able to make these things, as you can pop online and buy a skep for around £30 these days, so why on earth would you spend hours making one? And if you thought it would be nice to produce some skeps to sell, 
I'm not sure a long weekend of skep making would make you more than £100 at most, so not really an income generator. I think Chris's demonstration was my favourite of all the videos that I watched, and yes, I am tempted to grab some straw and have a go, but will I have the time? I don't know. There were also lectures on how to make beeswax wraps and soap. The beeswax wraps demonstration by Gwyn Marsh showed just how simple it can be to make a small change to remove plastic from part of your day-to-day -day lifestyle without too much work. I'm really keen to give it a go, and although there's a little preparation required, the actual time it takes to make the wraps is a lot less than that of making a skep, so who knows, I may even have found another product to add to the website. So I managed three talks or demonstrations and thoroughly enjoyed them. I didn't and probably won't ever enter the honey competition, but I know that Katie's keen to compete, so I'm going to see how she gets on and I'll report back once she's got the Champion Honey of the Year award. I really wouldn't put it past her. She's super competitive, so all you old hands out there that submit your honey to be judged, be warned. Next year, there's likely to be a new kid on the block. If the social distancing restrictions continue, who knows, the show could be online again next year, so fingers crossed they'll expand the number of speakers and range of topics. I would like to have seen mead making on the list of topics. Now that would have got me watching. I checked on the demijohns again this week, and I think the coolness in the unit has allowed the mead to start to clear quite quickly. The sediment has formed again on the bottom of one of the demijohns, and there's a strange floating sediment in the other. I'm not exactly sure what's caused it, but I'll do some reading and phone a friend, as they say, to get some advice and report back. Do let me know if you've had a bash at mead making. I'd love to know how you're getting on. It's looking like I'll be making some more mead in the next week, as I've just tested out the sump and pump, as I talked about last week. Everything went really well. The sump took a full eight buckets of honey with room to spare. Confession time, I forgot to take the measurements to work out the volume of the sump, but the eight buckets were enough to fill my 100 kilo settling tank to the very top. So from that, it's easy to see I'm going to need either a bigger tank or more buckets for next year. I was really pleased to find that the pump was running as quiet as I could ever have wished. It seems that when you run warm honey through it, there's a quietening effect, and I think it's going to be really helpful to have the sump and pump running when we extract next season. It'll take a lot of pressure off lifting buckets and shifting honey by hand, and should allow me to uncap and extract a lot more boxes. Changing topic completely, I really have to get my head around finishing my online microscopy course. I've been trying to put together a beginner's introduction to microscopy, all the basics so that anyone who's got no experience with a microscope would be able to follow the course and be able to produce a reasonably good quality pollen slide at the end of it and understand how to use a microscope to produce a well-resolved image of the slide. Most of the course is finished, I just need to complete the introductory section and it should be ready to launch. If you've not ever had an opportunity to use a microscope to check your pollen samples, you just don't know what you're missing. There's a real sense of understanding when you work through a sample of honey, settle out the pollen, 
and get it on a slide to view through your microscope. It sometimes feels like a, oh, of course, kind of moment when you realise you're looking at maybe blackberry pollen or maybe it's sweet chestnut and you can picture exactly where your bees are and where they would have been foraging. It's a real sense of satisfaction and allows you to say with confidence that your bees have been foraging on a specific plant. Of course, it's not just pollen identification that you can use the microscope for. And in the past, I've posted videos showing disease identification, such as nosema, and dissection techniques, such as the acarin mite detection. So I need to press on and get that course finished before moving on to more detailed demonstrations of dissection and disease recognition. Pollen slides are a great way to get into microscopy with little knowledge and then once you're hooked you'll wonder why you didn't do it sooner. Look out for the details in the coming week. In other news, I'm back working on the Ranger this week, that's the Ford Ranger of course. This time it's a replacement front bumper. The original one has become so badly corroded that the chrome finish has given way to pockets of rust and in some places it's even started to develop holes you can push your fingers into. I did ask a local garage if they'd do it, but they want around £125 to fit it, which seems like quite a lot to me. A quick message to my brother, and it seems we, or rather he, feels we have the tools and the technical ability to do it between us. Now, I probably sound a little apprehensive here, but I just know how these things go. Rusty nuts and bolts that won't shift, bashed knuckles and bumped heads. £125 is starting to sound like good value. It's too late now though, I've committed to giving it a try this weekend, so with any luck there'll be a couple of pictures posted on social media showing the end result, be it good or bad. Thank you everyone for your positive response to the idea of Zoom meetings. It seems like there could be quite an uptake of places, so I'll post some details in the next week with some further details. I'm thinking to start with we'll have a kind of questions and answers session with anyone who has a burning challenge or question to submit it to me beforehand so I can get some control over the timetable and make sure that everyone gets a chance to ask a question and hopefully get an answer. From what I've learned, the free Zoom accounts can only last for 40 minutes, so I'm going to have to invest in a paid account to give us plenty of time to get through the session without rushing. Because the demand is so high, the initial Zoom sessions will be available to the Coaching Plus tier, and as I get more familiar with what I'm able to do with Zoom, I'll see if I can set up some presentation-style webinar-type formats to hopefully entertain over these coming winter months. Look out for details on Patreon and social media in the coming days. Back at the workshop, we're progressing with the cleaning. Most of the feeders are now washed and stored ready for next time. I popped over last Saturday, but Pete was out, so I dropped off another stack of hive parts that need cleaning, particularly queen excluders, and I just wanted to mention these specifically. I know a lot of people don't use queen excluders, and that's fine, but I also know more probably do use them rather than not, myself included. This partially follows on from watching Mike Palmer's talk at the virtual honey show last week. He doesn't use queen excluders. Firstly, if you have used queen excluders this season, make sure you've removed them by now. If you haven't, there may be a window of opportunity this weekend as the temperature here in the UK seems to be increasing for a couple of days. This is particularly important if you've left a super on the hive as extra food for the colony. I've spoken about this before, but I've had a couple of questions relating to this 
this week, so it's worth a little reminder. If your hive is set up as a single brood and you have floor, brood box, queen excluder, crime board and roof, then you can get away with that. I don't know why anyone would leave a queen excluder on a hive if you don't have boxes above it, but well, this is beekeeping and beekeepers do some strange things sometimes. Removing the queen excluder means you're able to clean it ready for next season and also it removes those nooks and crannies that pests such as wax moth can hide in. If you have a brood box with an additional box, maybe a super above or below, then leaving the queen excluder in between the two boxes is likely to be problematic in that if the cluster of bees moves either up or down, it's possible for a queen to become isolated away from the main body of the cluster and potentially die of the cold. In practice, I've never heard of this happening. And as I remove my queen excluders, it's not something that I'm going to experience with my colonies. It may even be one of those beekeeping urban myths. Everyone has heard this happens, so the story gets passed around as fact. But when you ask that beekeeper if they've ever seen it themselves, they say no. It sounds like a plausible outcome, so why take the risk? Just thinking back to my earlier comments about Mike Palmer and his colonies that don't have queen excluders, I think this next season I'll set up an apiary in just the same way, with no queen excluders, and we'll see what happens. I just had a look at an online supplier of beehive parts and a wired queen excluder retails on their site for £18. That's around $23 or more. If you've got an apiary of a dozen hives, that's a lot of money to spend on queen excluders alone. The more I think about it, the more I think it's worth a try. Of course, thousands of beekeepers here in the UK use queen excluders, and that makes me think they must be doing it for a reason. It'll be an interesting experiment, and one that I'll record on video to show, whatever the outcome. Finally, if you're not a subscriber to my Patreon page, then you'll be listening to this in late November. As a suggestion, and if you're struggling for ideas for a Christmas present, want to ask for an annual subscription to my Patreon page. You'll be supporting my efforts to bring tips and techniques to beekeepers everywhere, and you'll gain access to all of my content, which you can then binge watch and binge listen to over the festive period ready for next year. Links to all the relevant information will, as usual, be in the podcast notes. But until next week, I'm Stuart Spinks, and that was Beekeeping Short and Sweet. Thank you.